There is a bit of explicit content in the podcast you are about to hear. It's Tuesday, July 17th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know, I want to talk about the Indonesian crocodile slaughter. Really, really, I do. I know Trump, Russia, Putin. You're thinking I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't not do that. Kind of a double negative because I would and I will. But in a second. But in Indonesia, the craziest thing happened. A crocodile attacked a villager. So the village, the entire village, got shall we say, a measure of revenge. And by measure, well, if a crocodile measures up to seven feet, they got about four-tenths of a mile of crocodile. Because this village goes out and in retribution killed 292 crocodiles. Yeah, 292. Now, I found that, let us say, excessive, a bit off-putting. But Reuters framed it not as a crocodile mass murder, but as almost an example of plucky can-do Indonesian spirit. Villagers in eastern Indonesia took matters into their own hands over the weekend, slaughtering 292 crocodiles after a man was killed at a breeding farm. The Amish do a barn raising, the Indonesians kill 292 crocodiles. But the press coverage left a little more answers than questions, to quote the Washington Post. It's particularly troubling that although nearly 300 crocodiles were killed, it's unclear whether the animal that killed the villager was among them. Really? That's what's particularly troubling? I know crocodiles are not charismatic, sympathetic, fluffy, or benign. I know they're, in fact, chompy and dangerous. But the troubling thing isn't the 292 crocodiles that were killed. It's that one specific crocodile might not have been killed for just being a crocodile, I might add. Well, to be a little more precise, and this is again according to the Post, for being a crocodile kept in ill-advised proximity to the people, Post says. Although the sanctuary was licensed, officials suggest that a security guard whose job it was to keep people away from the dangerous animals may be charged with negligence. Others questioned the logic of keeping ponds full of crocodiles so close to a populated village. Yeah, I am among those others. I would say the villagers are among those others questioning that decision. And they did their questioning with machetes and pitchforks. Elsewhere in the article was this reference. No charges have been brought against anyone involved in the mass cull. The cull sort of gives it a sheen of the methodical, does it not? Listen, I don't think a cull was going on. I think we had on our hands some pissed off Indonesians who wanted to kill themselves some crocodiles. Cull. Well, cull is, I guess, one letter away from kill or two if you spell kill right or cull wrong. I know, there are bigger issues in the world, but oh my God, can you imagine if these were lions or tigers that the Indonesians killed? I mean, they would be brought before the world court of Twitter outrage or something. Anyway, like I said, we've got bigger reptiles to fry today. Today, Donald Trump walked back his comments. He retroactively retracted a contraction. Wouldn't should have been would. We will have full team coverage and it won't disappoint And by won't, I think you know. I mean it will. So that'll be the spiel. That could be a tipping point for the presidency. Though by could, I probably mean couldn't, or maybe I mean cull. But first, 
While several Indonesians, a few hundred crocodiles, and the president of the United States seem not to be living their best lives, or in the case of the crocodiles, any life at all, it's no reason you can't be. Bridget Schulte of the New America Foundation and the head of the Better Life Lab is doing a new podcast for us at Slate, and she's here to talk about why we're so overworked yet dissatisfied with the news coverage we're getting from everyone but Hannity. Okay, maybe that's overly specific. Bridget's more of a generalist, and listen, she'll, she'll relate to you and your problems. I, I guarantee it. My friend, Golder, I should cite him by name. He's given me so many pieces of information over the years, said to me, Mike, I need a podcast to listen to. I listen to the gist. Here's what I'm looking for. A podcast that gives me life hacks I didn't even know I needed. And I said to Golder, well, that's the holy grail, isn't it? Because it seems like half the podcasts gives you life hacks you did know, and the other half gives you life hacks you don't need. I think I found the podcast for him. Better Life Lab podcast, the art and science of living a full life. Bridget Schulte is the host of said podcast. She also also is the director of the Better Life Lab and the Good Life Initiative at New America. I guess the Better Life Lab, a slight improvement on the Good Life Initiative. Hello, Bridget. How are you? <laughs> hey, Mike. <laughs> so this is definitely, I'm sure this is the kind of uh, podcast that if you explain to two friends or even strangers, their eyes would widen because everyone identifies with the idea of just being overworked and overwhelmed and over-anxious in our society. My question is, how do you focus that anxiety? Yeah, that's a great question because you're absolutely right. That's that's why we exist. People are really struggling. They're feeling this, you know, you look at any survey or poll or whatever, people are feeling uh, really overwhelmed at the uh, trying to combine work and life. And so what we've done is uh, kind of two things. We're gathering the stories of people who are struggling, who can really, that we can relate to, that they can share their story, but also people who are actually doing something different, um, stories that we can learn from. And then we're we're pulling in what we can from really a fascinating array of social scientists and behavioral scientists to help us understand more uh, from a behavioral science standpoint. Well, why are we doing this? Or how could we change this? Or what's the environment that we need to, to be able to make different decisions? Or what kind of policies need to change so that all of us can have a better life? Now, one statistic or one survey that I always grapple with, uh, smart people often cite different surveys that show we actually have more leadership your time these days than in our idealized past. How can that be? Well, you have to really look at what the numbers are looking at. You know, I, I wrote a book about time diary data and time use research. And what you see is when you look at averages, you can argue the work hours in the United States are falling, therefore leisure hours are going up. What that ignores is that actually work hours are going down for people in low-wage jobs or contract jobs, but, you know, they're not capturing the fact that maybe they'll have, like, another job or drive Uber. And I think it's really important to differentiate free time from leisure. Okay. You know, leisure itself, when you when you look at how the Greeks defined it, and they're the ones that came up with leisure and said it was the point of living a good life, leisure requires a sense of choice and control over time, and they argued that it was the place where we become most fully human. And I can tell you right now from my own experience, you know, you'll put in your time card, your quote-unquote time card that shows you worked 7.5 hours that day, and you've worked longer than that. And then your work's built 
rolls over and then you've got emails to answer in the evening or you're, you're afraid that you've got an email that will be coming from a manager. And so you're kind of always in this vigilant mode and it gets very difficult. These boundaries have become very blurred between work and life. And so it feels like work spills over and just never ends. So the last episode was about workaholics, and there were a couple of testimonials from workaholics. How real is the idea of workaholism or that as a definable, discernible malady as opposed to just some underlying anxiety and it's showing up in work? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And I think we don't really know, uh, we don't have a good answer because there isn't a whole lot of research. You know, we've kind of got this view that work is next to godliness. And if you work hard, you know, this is part of what makes for a really good life. And so therefore, the more you work, the better you are. And, you know, the flip side of that is then, well, if you're poor, well, you're not really working hard enough and there's something wrong with you. So we have a very strong Protestant work ethic in this country. And a lot of that is great. You know, hard Hard work is is awesome. It's part of what's really driven the American economy and a lot of innovation. But when it flips into this overwork, when it flips into this like never getting away from it to the point where it's burning you out or creating so much anxiety, I think that's something that we do have to look at. And frankly, because we have this kind of ideal worker culture where all of that work is so valued and celebrated, we don't really have the research to understand what is that line when it crosses. I basically found one person, though, when it comes to work who was able to, who, who's, who's sort of studying it, and there are real distinct ties with anxiety, like you say. When we get into that workaholism, when we get into overwork, it's really clear we're finding more and more research that that's not when you do your best work. You're not, you're, you're working all the time and you're not really doing good work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the researchers found that there is very little correlation or none to the people who are workaholics and the people who are great at their jobs. Yes, exactly. You know, and it's interesting when you look at long work hours, too. Again, that's part of the kind of ideal worker and Protestant work ethic. You know, there's been fascinating studies that have that have basically charted internationally, you know, kind of like what your average hours are internationally, you know, long work hours, and then productivity. And you can just see this declining line. The longer the hours, the lower the productivity. So in doing this series and in everything that you do there at New America with the Better Life Lab, have you come to believe that the reasons for our societal feeling of being overwhelmed by by work pressures, let's say, are a thousand little things. And you talk about a thousand little things. The fact that, you know, we have kind of a winner-take-all society. The fact that this has always been the way to do it. And maybe, you know, some people in HR have never even considered another way. You know, the fact that there's almost a fraternity pledge. I was hazed. I went through it. Therefore, you're going to go through it. These are all these little things. Or do you think there's one big overweening reason, something like, we are living in an age of anxiety, and this is how the anxiety is manifesting. Well, if you look at any age, any age sort of feels like they're the age of anxiety. You know, the whether it was the nuclear age or this, we're living in an era of rapid change, and the future is really uncertain. And, uh, you know, and I hate to say this, the future's always been uncertain, but we've, it feels more heightened now. I think we have more information about just how uncertain we are and like, oh, my God, are the robots going to mm-hmm. come and take our jobs away? So I think that there is a lot of uncertainty. Human beings don't do well with uncertainty. I don't 
don't think that there's any one gigantic reason why people are feeling anxious and overwhelmed. I do feel like there are a host of things, very interesting and complicated, interrelated things. And so what we do about it, it's not like there's any one lever we can pull. There's no one policy we can pass because there's going to be a host of things that we need to look at. And then if you have a policy but you don't have a culture that accepts it, then that policy doesn't mean anything. So that's why what we need to look at is policy, practice, and culture. I have an alternative theory, which is that I think it's possible in 50 years we might look back on this age like we look at something like depression. And, you know, 30 years ago, we could have talked about depression as this multifaceted thing. But now there's the disease model, the brain chemistry model. That's mostly how we understand it. And I think it's quite possible that we will identify the fact that we so changed the stimulus in the amount of information that is flooding us and overwhelming us, that it took away all our bandwidth for resilience, and that's why it's showing up in all these different anxieties. That's, that's what I think. Well, I think that's a good point, but there are larger other things going on as well. The fact that we really haven't figured out how to incorporate women in the workforce, the fact that we've got growing economic inequality, there are other things out there that are making life feel more precarious and breathless for people. Oh, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I don't think that because this is what's causing the anxiety, we don't need to incorporate women in the workforce. We don't need to reshape society to better take care of people. I just think the huge explanation for our anxiety has to do with uh, stimulus and media. Yeah, you know, I'm just going to push back a little bit on that. When you look at work hours, they started to increase uh, for, like, managers and professional workers in the 1980s, and that was long before everybody had an iPhone in their pocket. And that's one of the things that I'm really interested in looking at. You know, why did they start increasing in the 80s? You know, I think there are other things out there that that I think we will find as we look back that, that no doubt what you're talking about has been a huge factor, but I think there are others as well. All right. Bridget Schulte is the author of the best-selling Overwhelmed Work love and play when no one has the time and her podcast better life lab is a new slate feature from new america and her thank you bridget thank you And now the spiel. Yesterday in Helsinki, the president of the United States denigrated an investigation into Russian hacking into the 2016 U.S. election. He raised red herring questions about a DNC server and a Pakistani-American congressional staffer who had nothing to do with the hack. He said America bears some of the blame for meddling in the election. He described President Putin's denials as powerful. You know, the kind of denial that when it gets a hold of you, you really feel held. The entire tone of his press conference was consistent with his constant diversion techniques, his blame shifting, his responsibility ducking. It's what he always does, except this time Putin was standing next to him, not just, you know, hovering over him. As part of and entirely consistent with all those other remarks was this short statement. President Putin... Uh, He just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. And that's what the president attempted to walk or lumber back today. I realize that there is a need for some clarification. It should have been obvious. I thought it would be obvious, but I would like to clarify just in case it wasn't. In a key sentence in my remarks, 
I said the word would instead of wouldn't. The sentence should have been, I don't see any reason why I wouldn't or why it wouldn't be Russia. Now, we read that off a piece of paper. At a later point in the remarks that he was making before reporters, he glanced up from the paper and extemporized this little beauty. And I've said this many times, I accept our intelligence community's conclusion that Russia's meddling in the 2016 election took place. Could be other people also. Uh, There's a lot of people out there. So you can't see it. I'll explain what was happening. The I accept their conclusions that it was Russia, that part was read from the paper. And then he looks up, undercuts it all, and says, that could be other people too. That was all Trump. Now, it's not like Trump was lying entirely during today's remarks. For instance, he said this of his attendance at the NATO meeting. I can tell you, when I left, everybody was thrilled. I am prone to believe him on that. But there was another bit of tape that would call into question, shall we say, if Trump would or wouldn't believe that Russia hacked into our democracy. Here he is on Hannity talking about Putin's offer to help the Mueller investigation. But he's willing to take those 12 people. There is no extradition. But he's willing to let Robert Mueller's people go over there and bring a big investigation of those people working together with Russian investigators. So for you to believe that he meant wouldn't, What he's saying there is, uh, I see no reason why it wouldn't be Russia. With that said, you know, the Russian government, you know, the government that hacked us, they said they'd also have the investigators from the United States over to look into that hacking, which I really totally think was Russia's fault. Oh, God. You know, it's not as if Hannity didn't get something useful out of Trump. There was this moment of, I think, astonishing self-criticism. He's a disgrace to our country. He's a disgrace to the great FBI, a disgrace. And how he's still being paid is beyond belief. No, that was not Trump being self-reflective. That was him lashing out, if you can believe that. And he was lashing out against Peter Strzok. Because when has Trump ever been self-critical? When has he ever even been self-deprecating? He's never been. I can't think of a time when he's been. All right, now keep that in mind, that Trump just never is even playfully critical of himself, never says anything that could anyway reflect poorly on his intellect or his capacity or his power. All right, keep that in mind. And I'm going to play you another bit of some of the statements that he made today. Just to repeat it, I said the word would instead of wouldn't. And the sentence should have been, and I thought it would be maybe a little bit unclear on the transcript or unclear on the actual video, the sentence should have been, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be Russia. Sort of a double negative. So that was Trump reflecting on what he meant to say and really wanting us to know that he was using poor grammar and a double negative. Is that what that was? Or do you think that was more Trump reading words off the page? And during that part, he was looking and reading words off the page. And then, because he's pure impulse, he looks up to tell us, that's a double negative, by the way. See, I'm not dumb. I wouldn't say that. Even though the entire point of the walk back was to try to convince us that he meant to say that. 
I got to say, right now, where I'm building the case, methodically trying to prove to you that Trump was lying, that's, that's not that controversial a thesis. I get that, right? Resolve, Donald Trump acts in self-serving ways, engages in dishonesty. It's not exactly Stephen Hawking trying to convince the astrophysics community about gravitational radiation. It's like I have a corkboard, and on one part of the corkboard, it's a big picture of Trump, and on the other part of the corkboard is an index card with the word lies, and I slowly take my red thread emanating from the Trump picture and pin it to lies. I'm building my case. And then I take another red thread and pin it from Trump to lies. And then we pull back and you see that I have a skein of red yarn all going from Trump to lies. We pull back more and I've knitted a full turtleneck red sweater between those two. And we pull back more and you see I've created all the uniforms for the Detroit Red Wings, and we pull back a little more, and you see connecting Trump and lies are all the home uniforms for the Detroit Red Wings, and we pull back more, and we see the earth from space, and the only man-made structures visible are the Great Wall of China, and this giant amount of red thread between Trump and lies. So I get it. It's not a huge lift to convince you that Trump lies. I still congratulate myself, at least, on my capacity to be shocked by all of this. Today's clarification, oh, sorry, I've looked back at the transcript. I said clarification, I meant conflagration, did nothing to dig Trump out of his hole. And the word that attaches itself over and over to him and this spectacle was clear. What we all saw and heard from President Trump today was shameful. His behavior was so shameful, so... That was uh, just a shameful performance. It really was. And Republican lawmakers today called the president's pandering to Putin shameful. That was Don Lemon, Senators Booker and Flake, and Chris Matthews. Morning Joe jumped on the shame train and made the point to shame even those who just stand by the president and nod. They too are covered in soot. Could also be applied to Mike Pence, who shamefully shamefully defended the president of the United States last night. But here's my question. Can a blind man be said to see your point? Can a lame man walk back remarks? Can a tone-deaf amnesiac sing a familiar tune? No more than what they are saying of Donald Trump, that he is a man who should be ashamed. Because Donald Trump knows no shame. He is constitutionally unable to experience shame, which is just about the only constitutional thing about him. So who's the shamed party here? It's not him or Don Jr. or Eric or Pence or Pompeo or Bolton or Jared. What about Paul Ryan? That guy's a crack whore for tax cuts with all the shame implied in that position, both those positions. All these people are impervious to shame, but they're also saturated in it. They're the typhoid Marys of shame. Luckily, there are enough people within the government, within the electorate, even within the ranks of Republican officials who acutely feel the shame that their countrymen in the highest positions cannot feel. And thankfully, those forces will not stand for the ongoing shaming of America. Oh, wait, that part where I said will not stand? I may need to correct that. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader and Pierre Biennium produced The Gist. They would like to clarify their comments on Kevin Costner taking the lead role in a mid-90s Western. They didn't mean to say, I don't see any reason why he wouldn't. They meant to say he would make a wooden Wyatt 
Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. He meant no offense when he gave the punchline as, would I, would I, up yours, peg leg. What he meant to say was, wouldn't I? We are both beautiful on the inside. The gist, now we have to make some corrections, clarifications, some apologies. All are related to um, your mama. So again, I'd like to um, clear up if this was misinterpreted. When I said, yo mama is so ugly that she threw a boomerang and it wouldn't even come back, what I meant to say was that it would come back. She's not quite that ugly. When I said that, yo mama is so bald, when I rubbed her head, I could see the future. It's not true. I couldn't see the future. I tried many times. And finally, when I said, yo mama is so fat that in the remake of Star Wars, she should play Admiral Snack Bar. I meant she shouldn't play Admiral Snack Bar. She clearly should not play the obese Mon Calamari Admiral. Why should she? She obviously lacks the girth and the acting range. And I have heard that Andy Serkis has been cast in that role. I hope this clears things up. Oomperu depru duperu. And thanks for listening. <laughs>